episode of Untrue Crime, where fiction meets felonies. I'm Bill DeWing. And I'm Alexandria Parker. We'd like to apologize for the delay in recording, as we had some unfortunate life events come up. That no, mine was fortunate. I was just traveling, and it ended up taking 10 hours, so it was, it was like, a long time. Well, the inability to record was unfortunate, and we it have was. an idea to rectify a future situation like that. So hopefully this will not happen again for the same reasons. Anyway, today's episode includes content warnings for child death. This is your other fair warning that this podcast uses explicit language before someone walks in at just the wrong time. As a last warning, today's episode includes child death. Let's get this started, shall we? We shall! Back to a world which we know well, a world with plenty of its own crimes that we don't need to imagine. Earth is a bustling society of humans with a lack of magical qualities. It's the only planet that they know of that has a species such as humans. But why would you need to leave the planet when there's so much here? There's dams that hold back the sea with ease, protecting millions of citizens from drowning, buildings that sway in the breeze and kiss the clouds goodnight, and of course, people, who in their ever-changing nature, remain the same. Without magic, humans are left to create their own, and they seem not to struggle with this, as new developments break through what could possibly be day by day. As it is a wonder to stare at what we don't have, the beauty of what we do should never be lost on us. Each person on Earth has the right to be an artist, and each one is an artist in their own way. One might not think that typing away on a screen could be artistic, but some make it so. Some might not think that math is beauty, but some make it so. Mm. You're gonna upset Maisha. I don't care. I do see I do see the beauty in math when it's like those huge problems that someone solves because it's like doing an escape room for them, not for oh, me. Oh, you mean it like the huge ones that people write out on whiteboards? I don't think they're yeah. pretty, but I do think... Oh, man. You know? Yeah, I do think that they're pretty. I think it's beautiful that humans can do something like that and solve it. Like, that's incredible. Math? Math. Yeah. Okay. All right. I couldn't make math pretty. I distinctly didn't throughout all of my education. I also didn't. I hated math. I was really good at it, though. I didn't find it beautiful. None of, none of me found it beautiful. And that's being good at it. I wasn't good at it. So you can imagine how unpretty my math was. I think taking one look at any algebra problem I ever solved, where I've written out PEMDAS on every single page of my quiz would really testify to that yeah 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 okay i didn't i didn't realize it was like that (laughs) (laughs) like i thought when you said you were bad at math like you kind of struggled with exponents i didn't know that we went to pemdas what i mean why i was bad at math is every time i got a math test like, the first thing I would do is if there's a formula that we were supposed to memorize for the math test, I was looking over it right before the, before the test, right, repeating it over and over and over. And as soon as I got my test, I'm scribbling it down as fast as I can on every single page. So then I don't, oh my God. I don't forget. Well, actually, I, I scribble it down on the first page and then copy it onto the other pages so that I didn't have to flip back to look at it. Wow. So, but shout out to a couple of my high school math teachers such as Mrs. Tag. They really just pulled me through. Don't know what I would have done without them. Actually I do know. I would have failed math without them. So 
Where there is the impossible, humans meet it with the possible. Welcome back to our world, full of art, down to the cells that we are made of, as intricate as the humans that they create. Humans are beautiful. Each one of them is, really, and if you have not yet noticed, I can only suggest you begin to watch for the purity of the palm people. The way that they smile, the right crook of their neck as they look for something, the curvature of their hands, the way that their hair falls, it's all so unique, so special, and so normalized that we miss it. To be human is to baguette. 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 <laughs> to be human is to a baguette. <laughs> this is Italian. I'm keeping that in. That's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> to be human is to possess great beauty, as that is our nature. To be human is to seek a greater beauty, unrecognizing what is already there. The Stovall artists were composed of Roderick and Gwen Stovall, a married couple that both happened to be in the field of art. They took inspiration from the joys of family, made frequent social commentary through their work, and both died early deaths that were suspected to not be of natural causes. Roderick passed on January 2, 1951, and Gwen passed approximately two days later on January 4, 1951. We do not know when Gwen Stovall truly passed, though, as she was only found ten days later. She had been the one to report Roderick's death, but after no one hearing from her for a few days, the house was searched thoroughly, only to find that she had also passed. Police became involved, but could not locate anything that would imply that the death was not natural. There were no weapons, no tipped-over cups, no sign of forced entry, but there was a window open. Their causes of death remain unknown, as their family wished for them not to be autopsied. Their shared home was inherited by one of their nephews, who sold some of the works they had, and their localized popularity quickly became widespread. I have a question. Yeah, what's up? What does tipped-over cups imply? Like, poison? Poison, yeah. Oh, okay. Because if there's no, like, blood over there, then it's, like, the logical conclusion is that they've been poisoned. I was was like, oh, yes, if I was murdered, what I would do is I would tip over a cup. Um, But poison makes sense. Yeah, the poison thing if is, like, you know, you would tip over the cup after they had been poisoned, so that way the poison falls to the ground. And then it falls to the ground, and yeah. yeah. Okay. Gwen Stavall, born in 1906, was a poet, though she was later discovered to have multiple unpublished stories, including a few autobiographies depicting her own life. These autobiographies were later published. Her parents took a very active role in her life, encouraging her writing, living just a few blocks from her and Roderick. Through the uninspired people of her town, she was described as average-looking. She had black hair, light brown eyes, crooked teeth, and a below-the-knee prosthetic that she had had since she was a child. She was often portrayed as short and referenced herself to be, though it is unclear if her small descriptions were of her personality or build. The two were typically side by side in her poems. These published poems were typically in regards to societal issues at the time, but often delved into love, the expectations of romance, and what it meant to be in a family. Roderick Stovall, born in 1904, was an oil painter. At the time, he was best known for his social realism, though he would later go on to be known for his portrait work. One of his self-portraits demonstrated best what he looked like, a lengthy, wiry man, his facial features sunken in. His brown eyes always appeared to be distant when he painted them, and his hair varied from a bright blonde to a light brown in different depictions. His self-portraits always showed him holding something. One of his more well-known pieces, titled Joys of Fatherhood, depicted him bending down to hold his toddler daughter's hand, who was not shown other than her arm extending out to him. Did he ever paint any pictures of his family or of Gwen or any of the other yes. players in the story? Good. As he should. If I had, if I was dating like you a are gonna love painter, this man. Oh, 
Like, you're going to love this man. You might be a little in love with this man. Oh, no. Oh, no. He's got he's got the, the curly, brownish, blonde hair. You know hair. I'm a sucker for curls, too. I know. You've done this on purpose. I have. Oh, no. From their signatures, the dates, the progression of the style of their art, and their pairing of paintings to poems, an interesting piece of the Stovell artist stories is that art historians have been able to track it. Of course, they claim that they cannot be sure of the exact story, but from what they have been able to piece together is widely considered to be accurate. Their love story has had adaptations made of it in books, movies, and a shortly run TV show. Roderick and his wife, Gwen, had been high school sweethearts for as long as anyone could remember. Though their art did not start with each other, they did blossom around one another. She wrote hundreds of poems about him when they were in school, and his sketchbooks depicted her in hundreds of different scenarios. Oh, Wait. As shown by the drawing overlapping in the text, Roderick wrote notes about what he found most inspiring about the image he was depicting when creating a sketch in them. However, he would always include a synonym for beautiful. She was seen in many different scenarios in these sketchbooks. She was overjoyed in some, crying in others, staring out a window, and he seemed utterly inspired by her full range of emotions. One of his immortalized sketches was of Gwen reading in her pajamas. He had four notes to the side. Soft, tear-stained, curled in, and darling. Oh, this is really sweet. He's a kind guy. He's just a loving lad. Well, see, you've made a mistake, because thus far, I've not actually fallen in love with Roderick. I'm just shipping him and Gwen really hard. Aside from sketches, Gwen had many paintings made of her, but there were no greater number of paintings than their wedding in 1922. The depictions of their <laughs> You just- she's melting, y'all. It's so sweet! I've seen, like, those those wedding painters on TikTok where, like- I love those. They, they paint scenes from your wedding. I want one of those someday. I, I do. Think that's so sweet. I want- they're in paintings of their wedding. Okay, you can continue. The depictions of their wedding were all matched with poems that Gwen had written, tacked onto the wood of the canvas. Oh, well, that's better! <laughs> Previously, it was assumed that 20 of them had been created, but art historians have recently been able to claim that there may be more paintings from their wedding. As they were not of the couple, but of the guests, they cannot confirm the exact amount, but it is presumed that they were given to the guests either as gifts or as a way to conserve space. No one can be sure. It appeared as though he had asked her on multiple accounts to put her wedding dress back on, as the progression could be tracked through his paintings of her in the dress. Gwen became pregnant in late 1923, and was depicted like this in Roderick's paintings more than her own poetry. Her poetry at this time was becoming popularized, and she seemed to focus her efforts on continuing with this popularization rather than her pregnancy. However, after the baby was born, she began writing about her own life again. Many art historians found it odd that the family-based woman stopped writing about family in such a pivotal moment of its growth. It seemed out of character for her, for what they knew about her. However, some argue that the first poem recorded after her daughter's birth tells more about her mindset than others give it credit for. It was a haiku, scribbled on a tear-stained napkin, later framed in their home. It read, For my dear daughter, more than my own poetry, I love you. Oh. That's really sweet. I don't think it's alarming that she wasn't writing about her pregnancy while she was pregnant. I think that 
pregnancy can be hard and it's 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 a really big adjustment for a person i've never been pregnant but i've heard that it's a very big adjustment never been pregnant for people to make because that's like a whole like huge change in your body and the way you look and the fact that like you're also going through like growing a whole human like i don't think there's anything wrong with her not in pregnancy when you pregnancy. go through it it's just it's a little it's not dehumanizing but you're kind of tacked together with your future baby where it's like yeah. how are you in the baby you know yeah where i can understand and why I she would want her own individuality in this moment also people treat you like your whole life is about your pregnancy like they'll just come up to you in the grocery store and be like can i touch your belly and it's like no they won't ask they will not ask sometimes they ask sometimes they don't but i think that I don't know. I don't think it's weird that she's not writing about her pregnancy. It's also just like, I know for some people it can be like a really wonderful experience, but for other people it's just kind of whatever, and for other people they don't really like it. So, whatever. And for people that have been creating art their whole life, you don't stop doing art because of a life change. You just keep going no. with it. Exactly. Some argue that this shows that she was preoccupied, potentially worried that she would not love her child as much as she loved creating poetry. Oh. Others argued, I think, more in a way of that's why she wasn't creating poems. Go back to, like, the last paragraph where it was, why wasn't she creating poems when she, about her life, where it all stopped. Maybe. It's a like, big jump to make without knowing her, though. It is, but, you know, you've got to speculate when she's dead. That's true. Others argued that this was a poem written hastily, likely after birth, and that a mother's love for her child was a perfectly normal thing to write about after that point, that the poem had less significance due to its timing. There are many different standpoints on the poem, but it is marked as being vital to their careers, because it marked the first piece of their art of their inspiration being shifted off of each other and onto the child. The child was hardly ever referred to by her actual name, and this seems intentional in the Stovall artist's part. Instead of calling her by her legal name, they referred to her as Muse in their work. There are many speculations as to why this happened, or why they had chosen to give their child an alias, as neither of them had opted to use one. On further research, they learned that Muse's real name was Melissa. Some accounts believe that Melissa Stovall was not intended to share the fame that her parents seemed to be heading towards that her parents wished to shield her from the public interest that could accumulate. Others believe that calling her muse was a way to immortalize her instead, as if they wanted to take her out of the public eye, they wouldn't make art about her. To call her muse was to tie the word to her. If they were to truly get famous, she would be the image that was thought of when that work came up, tying her to her parents' legacy, making sure that she wasn't left out of it. A third opinion thinks that it was a loving title that they had given her, for the rest of their lives, she was their muse. Many parents give their kid nicknames that simply catch on, so it didn't need a reason. Perhaps it was just something loving. There were many, many speculations as to why Melissa was referred to as muse, but none could be confirmed or denied, even by their distant relatives. I think it's a good idea for just making the work more timeless and relatable, too, because if you put muse, that could refer to anyone because if you're reading like say a poem and it's talking about like the subject's muse then you can insert your own life into that with your own muse and stuff and it makes it more relevant to you rather than to just this specific scenario yeah 
I I like that they gave the kitten a different name. I think that no matter the reason they did it, I think it was a good decision. I agree. Though the parents continued to make loving art for each other, their lives, their families, and their political statements, both of their inspirations after the birth of Muse centered upon their daughter. A majority of the art that was created was about her, referring to her, or involved her in some way. She would even appear in their political realism, often as being above it all. One of the most prevalent examples of this is Roderick Stovall's Below, in which Muse, assumedly at eight years old, is depicted as an angel without wings. She's the light source of the painting, has her eyes shut, palms held upward with a gentle smile on her face. She wears a white toga and bears a halo. There is no other notable light source. This was not a well-received painting at the time, as the message seems to be that there is one similarity amongst men, and it is being below the heavens. However, in this case, it was his daughter. This was not the first depiction of her being above other beings, as she appeared in many other paintings as a celestial being, as well as being referred to as such in poems and writing, but this is the first known depiction of this phenomenon. Talk about high expectations from your parents. Yeah, seriously. Imagine growing up in all of your childhood paintings. I mean, they had cameras, but not as much as we do now. You just painted and as literally just... an angel, an literally angel. a divine being your whole life, and you're like, oh, You're just man. held above it all. You're finally a teenager, and all you really want to do is go out and party, but you're like, oh, no. Oh, man. What about my legacy? <laughs> and, like, let's think about what time that's going to be for her. That's the middle of wartime. Yeah. Oh, speaking of wartime... On January 5th, 1941, drawings began to appear around their city of Meuse. There was writing on the bottom asking if anyone had seen the teenager, who was around 16 at the time. A police report was later found to have been filed just days earlier, on January 2nd, of their missing daughter, another confirmation of her name being Melissa rather than Muse, though that part is not the most important piece of their case. The police records show extensive search for her, but no evidence whatsoever. The case was closed years later, as she was declared dead with absolutely no headway for all of those years. But still, the pictures never stopped. They were slid under doors, taped up. Though the Stovalls were repeatedly told to stop, as they were getting complaints about their persistence, they did not. It is assumed that Roderick painted graffiti of her, but it cannot be confirmed, as the style was so different from what he usually did, which was the same argument that was used to the police. With so many showcases of his art's progression, he was dismissed from being the one having put them up. It is still unknown who actually put it up, but some pieces have remained through all of the years. Muse was never found, never seen, nor heard of again. Her parents' art all made a point to have her in it afterwards. Despite having gone missing, she was never missing in her parents' art. She was always depicted in some way, shape, or form. Despite having gone missing at 16, Muse was frequently depicted as a child. Ten years later, both Roderick and Gwen passed away in their home, just days away from one another. The family took claim to their house, though no one lived in it. Though they were relatively known in their lives, they became better known after them, Gwen's great-nephew ending up selling a few of their pieces upon inheriting their house. With their life story depicted throughout it, they became internationally known for their work, along with their forever missing daughter, Muse. Their work was put into museums, typically paired together, until in 2010, a small museum for just their art was opened. Walking through the museum would take one guest through their entire life story and teach them what it was like for them. This only increased their popularity more as their story became more known. 
adaptations began to form, and people being people loved the story. In 2019, plans to turn their old home into a museum were put into place, though the plans were significantly halted by COVID. In 2022, they picked it back up, and the home was walked through again to assess what needed to be reinforced. Photographers took pictures of everything to rearrange it similarly to how it was originally placed, people moved the antiques out, and the construction workers got to work. During restoration, it was discovered that the Stovall artists had a well-covered basement. With permission from the project manager, they opened it up and were greeted with a horrible old smell. Oh no. In the large basement, they found hundreds of uncovered art, some that had still been in progress at the time it had been left. They explored the basement to see if anything needed to be reinforced quickly to ensure the workers' safety, but instead, upon opening a door to what seemed like a storage room, they found a small bedroom. In the bed lay a dead body, which investigators were later able to identify as a girl of approximately 10 years old. Her body had been decomposing for quite some time, which left police unable to identify her, nor what had killed her. The previous homeowners, all descendants from Gwen's side of the family, were investigated, but none were aware of the body, and all of them seemed shocked by it. Though the case came up with many questions, their lack of information forced them to leave it unanswered. The museum project was promptly discontinued, and although the art was extracted and put into another museum, the house itself was demolished. The story was incredibly public and left everyone with questions. Who was that girl? Why was she in the basement? Were the Stovell artists killers? Was that why Muse ran away, if she had really run away? Where was she now? But, so you said she was 10. So it couldn't have 10? been Muse. They couldn't have killed Muse, mm-hmm. and that, was, that couldn't have been her. No. And they just left her there, and nobody smelled her all this time? If she's in that deep of a basement, like, I presume this is a pretty big-ass basement, and they, she's been there for, like, a lot of years. She's mostly decomposed by now. People didn't live in that house for, like, years after the Stovells had died. Oh, that's true. I forgot no one was in there. But if, if the Stovells put her there, then she would have had to have started rotting when they died, because they would have had to put... Surely someone came into that house. Well... Hmm. Quite a mysterious one, this one is. Isn't it just? But unlike the people of their world and Alexandria, if you have unanswered questions, thoughts, theories, or comments, you can always ask them at untruecrimethepodcast at gmail.com, all lowercase, for a chance to be featured at the end of the season during our Q&A. That'll be all for today. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.